Well, let me add my uh, welcome to that of uh, Andrew's earlier on in the service. It's uh, wonderful to see you here, and especially I see some guests here. Perhaps you've never been here before. It's great to have you uh, with us. Now, at this part in the service, we're going to turn back in in our Bibles to that reading that we had earlier. Uh, We believe as Christians that uh, God speaks to us through the Bible, that he is the author of the Bible, the one behind everything that's written in it, and therefore that we understand him uh, and understand what he wants for us as we look at it. So if you've got a Bible near you, you'll find them in the pews in front of you. Um, Can I encourage you to turn uh, in your Bible to page uh, 1014, 1014, Uh, back to the reading that Claire read for us just a little bit earlier. And then if you just hold that open for a while, uh, we'll be looking at that in some depth. Now let me pray for us, and I'll pray that God will help us to understand the Bible as we come to it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Bible. We thank you that you do speak to us through it, and we pray that you'd be pleased to do that again this evening as we meet here in this building. We've been singing of the deep love of Jesus. And we pray that we'd grasp the immense depth of that love as we look at the Bible tonight. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Last week, the, the Daily Mail ran a story declaring that scientists are coming ever closer to unlocking the secret of eternal life. Uh, They've not made the breakthrough yet, obviously. So for now, you have to turn to the science of uh, cryonics, or that's what it's called here. Maybe you know it as uh, cryogenics. You have to turn to that science to help you out. Uh, For a fee of £75,000, a company called Alcor, based in Arizona, will dispatch a trained response team when you die to drain your your blood and deep freeze your body in a huge vacuum flask of liquid nitrogen. In theory, the the firm's employees will thaw you out and revive you at some point in the future when science has advanced enough to cure you of whatever it was you died of. Uh, The article says more and more people are turning to this science because of a growing conviction among scientists that it may be possible to extend life to live hundreds of years, maybe even forever. But before you rush to get your checkbooks out and invest £75,000 of your hard-earned cash for the privilege of being put in a deep freeze when you plop your clogs, Um, let me warn you that it is a very precarious business. You see, the article tells us that in 1979, nine bodies stored in California thawed out because the company involved ran out of funds. (laughs) Uh, I reckon that must have been the only time a company would have preferred to have had their assets frozen. (laughs) Yeah, no, the jokes don't get any better, so enjoy that one. Reaching for eternal life through cryonics is a perilous business and the end result is uh, by no means certain. But tonight I want to talk to you about the promise of eternal life that is by no means precarious and isn't dependent on scientific discovery or a company's remaining solvent. See, Jesus Christ offers a certainty of life beyond the grave forever. Now that really is quite an offer, isn't it? Oh, if you're in your teens or or 20s, if life's going well for you, you may well say, uh, that's not something I'm interested in right now. But, But if that's you, for whatever reason, please don't switch off. You see, whoever you are, it's an issue that will bother you one day. As a vicar, I've taken well over 100 funerals, and I've not yet led a funeral where this question isn't relevant. I think of the first funeral I ever conducted, and I will never forget the words of a tearful widow 
as I visited her at home to talk about the service for her husband's funeral in a few days' time. She looked at me and said this, he's in a better place now, isn't he, vicar? See, it's a question that is relevant to everyone, yet desperately, most people only ask that question when it's too late. Which is why the young man that we read about in Mark 10 so impresses me. In Mark 10, uh, chapter 10 and verse 17 on page 1014, you'll see that this man ran up to Jesus and asked about life after death. Do you see it there, bottom right-hand corner of uh, page 1014? As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life. Now let's be honest, some people turn to Jesus because they've gotten their lives into such a mess like a a kitten with a ball of string and they have to ask for help. But this guy's not like that. He's not come to escape. He can cope with life. Just, Just take a look at him. In verse 22, we discover that he was very wealthy. Suits from Savile Row, ties from Harrods, a Porsche parked around the corner. He was loaded And when another Bible writer records the same event, he describes this man as a rich young ruler. So he had a position in society, and so early in life. And the more I've looked at him this week, the more I've warmed to him. There's there's no question that success can go to some people's heads. But on the evidence that was uh, here before us, that wasn't the case with this man. He was delightfully humble. Look at his approach to Jesus in verse 17. He ran up to Jesus and fell on his knees. And what's more, he was a moral bloke. In verse 20, we discover that he was bothered about keeping the commandments. So he's got manners, he's got morals, and he's got money. It seems this man has everything. In fact, there's only one thing more he needed. If he just had one more thing, he'd have everything anyone could ever want for. Just one more thing missing. He's not a Leeds United supporter. No, I didn't think that would go down very well in Sheffield, but anyway, we try. What is so impressive about this man is that he has so much, yet it doesn't stop him from recognising that he he doesn't have all the answers. And he doesn't have the answer to the million-dollar question, our question tonight, the question of eternal life. And so he ran up to Jesus and said, you see it there in verse 17, how can I be sure of eternal life? How can I be sure of life beyond the grave? It is an important question. Indeed, I want to suggest this evening, if there is life beyond the grave, eternal life, you couldn't actually ask a more important question than how to be sure of having it. Not that everyone would agree. In this article in the Daily Mail, the headline reads this, As scientists come ever closer to unlocking the secret of eternal life, one man's very pertinent question, would you die of boredom if you lived forever? Well, it depends on what eternal life looks like, really, doesn't it? See, Jim said he wasn't really looking forward to it either uh, some years ago. And really, there, there is so much misunderstanding about the Christian view of eternal life, it's no wonder that some people imagine it to be boring. Please, will you tonight rid yourself of all thoughts of disembodied spirits and airy, fairy, angelic beings, twanging harps, floating on clouds and eating low-fat cream cheese? <laughs> that really would be boring. And be assured that's definitely not the view of eternal life that the Bible gives us. Uh, Some years ago I met an old man in his 90s who who just wanted to die. 
I asked him if he knew about eternal life after death and how he could be sure of it. And he said, no, no, please don't tell me that. You see, the thought of eternal life for him was more of the same. And life was simply not fun for him. Every day was a struggle and he wanted out. But when I told him how the Bible described eternal life in a new creation, a material world, a world like this world but with all the bad bits removed, a wonderful world to live in with with no more suffering or pain, no more crying or dying and a body in tip-top condition that never wears out. Well, that's a different proposition, isn't it? As the Bible presents it, eternal life is paradise. It's tangible. It's a life of variety and beauty and fun. It's a perfect day forever. Now, this young ruler knew that. As a good Jewish lad, he knew what the Bible taught about eternal life. And even as a guy who had everything in this world, he didn't want to miss out on that future. Oh, no. Hence the question, verse 17, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And what a surprise to see the way Jesus answers. Did you notice it in verse 18? Jesus said to the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. See, if this man had run up to me and asked me this question, whatever he'd have called me, because Jesus responded that way because he just called him good teacher, Well, no matter what he'd have called me, I'd have sat him down with a cup of coffee and systematically gone through with him everything he needed to know, all the ins and outs of being sure of eternity. But Jesus is quite different. Because Jesus detected something fundamentally wrong with this man's thinking. The misunderstanding is there in the question in verse 17. I wonder if you spot it. He said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You see, in this rich young man's thinking, eternal life is reached by by reaching a certain grade, doing certain things. What must I do? And I think I understand why he thought that way. After all, there's uh, there's no such thing, is there, in this life as a free lunch. This man knew what we all knew. To succeed in life, you have to work hard, extremely hard. Jim said that earlier, he knew that. And this rich young man had done that. He'd learnt the lessons of discipline. He'd read Longfellow. Well, he hadn't because it hadn't been written, but if it had been written, he'd have read it. The heights by great men reached and kept were not attained by a sudden flight, but they, while their companions slept, were toiling upward in the night. Now, many in Fullwood know the truth of that. From the word go, you've known that to reach your goal, to achieve your ambition, you've had to work hard. Laziness gets you nowhere. But the danger is we think the same applies to heaven. That's this rich young man. He'd achieved everything else in life and he thinks eternal life is no different. So, Jesus, tell me what I've got to do to get eternal life and I'm prepared to do it. Set the challenge and I will rise to it. That's the essence of what this young man's uh, uh, question. What must I do? And when I speak to people about life beyond the grave, that's the way most people think about heaven. They say things like this. I expect to be in heaven, if there's a heaven, because I've been a good person. See, that's what I've done. I hope to go to heaven when I die because I'm religious. The things I do. 
It's the sort of things people say to me when I ask them this question. I like asking people this question. If you were to die tonight and God were to say, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? Well, let me ask you that question. What would you say? If you were to die tonight and God were to say, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? I've I've written out here a list of things that, that most people say. See, a lot of people like to go down sort of the moral route. I, I've been good enough, they say. They say things like that. Uh, I don't steal. Uh, I, I've kept the Ten Commandments. Uh, I give to charity. One person said to me, my, my giving is index linked, so I'm bound to get into heaven. <laughs> I've not been a murderer or a rapist. Uh, I don't lie. Those sorts of things. Uh, they're going down the moral route. You know, they're saying, I'm not a murderer or a rapist or a dentist. I'm a good person. <laughs> that sort of thing. Sorry, I do like dentists. In fact, I, I, I had lunch with one today and uh, didn't have any chocolate afterwards just to prove it. So, um, but uh, other people like to go down sort of a religious route. They, they say things like this. I go to church. Well, not just any church. I'm a member of the Church of England. Well, you're bound to be all right then, aren't you? And then they say other things like this. They say, I've been baptised and... Uh, and uh, and I've been, uh, I've been confirmed. Or, or this one. I pray and, uh, and I read the Bible. Well, they're all good things, aren't they? That's the things that, that people say. I go to communion. Uh, one person uh, said this to me once. Why should I let you into heaven if God was to ask you that question? My grandfather used to ring the church bells. <laughs> and my, my brother asked, uh, asked that question once as well to someone and he replied, I watch songs of praise. Well, I reckon uh, if you've watched songs of praise more than once, then you probably do deserve to go to heaven, but that's not the answer. (laughs) And and so you see all the time here are people trying to do moral things and religious things, but please hear me this evening, that's not it. That is not the answer that Jesus gives. Again, I'm not knocking these things. These things can be great. I'm not knocking them, but please be sure that you grasp that when it comes to having eternal life, these things will not get you into heaven. They simply won't. That was a great surprise when somebody taught me that some years ago. And I think that's one of the biggest misunderstandings about Christianity that I encounter day after day. Indeed, that's why I think people misunderstand what my job's about. What's my job as the vicar? People think that I'm like a jockey whipping an exhausted horse to try and tell you to try harder, urging you to keep going so that you'll finally get over the finish line and into heaven. That's not it at all. I'm not like a jockey. I'm not going to tell you this evening to try harder. Because when this rich young man asked about eternal life, Jesus did not tell him to try harder. You see, the first thing Jesus wanted this man to understand and come to uh, was the realisation, and we need to come to this same realisation, that we are not good That's a surprise, isn't it? You see, that's why he latches on to this word good. But verse 18, uh, the uh, the rich young man called Jesus good teacher. And verse 18, why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, honour your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. You see, this man was a moral bloke. He'd have been a great neighbour to have. You'd like him on the neighbourhood watch scheme, wouldn't you, this man? He didn't steal. You could trust him to look after your house when you went away on holiday. He didn't commit adultery. You could trust him with your wife when you went away on business. 
He didn't defraud. You could trust him with your business when you went away with your wife. He didn't lie. You could trust what he said when you wanted to know the truth. He honoured his father and mother. You'd be proud if he was your son and pleased if he married your daughter, though not pleased if he was your son and married your daughter. But then he'd never dream of doing that. He was a moral bloke. But the problem was he thought he was good. And that's the problem with most of of us. We think we're good. And we think that in some measure we deserve heaven. And of course if we compare ourselves to others, we may look very good. There's always someone in life that you can find who's not as good as you. You compare yourself to them and you'll look good, won't you? We're very good at doing that, have you noticed that? Uh, When uh, Leeds United were doing a little better than they are these days, uh, which uh, was uh, quite a long time ago now, I was uh, enthusiastic enough about being a Leeds fan to read a number of books about them. One of them was uh, Peter Lorimer's autobiography. Peter Lorimer, Leeds and Scotland hero. Peter Lorimer played for Leeds United Football Club in their heyday in the late 60s and early 70s. Peter Lorimer had the hardest and fastest shot in football, recorded at over 70 miles an hour, if I recall correctly. Hundreds of schoolboys wanted to be Peter Lorimer. I did. Let me tell you, after reading this book, any latent schoolboy desires to be Peter Lorimer ended instantly. It is not a great read, even for an ardent Leeds fan. But the worst thing about this book is how full of himself Lorimer is. How he'll do whatever he wants to do to get whatever he wants. Indeed, listen how he justifies his unfaithfulness to his wife. His wife's name is Gillian. He meets another woman called Susan. At the club I met Susan. We started to go out together and it became pretty plain to Gillian that things were not as they might have been. The commercial public house owned by a friend of mine was coming up for sale. I decided to buy it and Susan, who's been my partner since then, moved in with me. He says this as he Uh, looks at uh, that particular chapter of his life. My overview is that I did my best for my family. Gillian's a lovely girl with a lovely family and I'm lucky enough now to be with another lovely girl also with a lovely family. The way I look at things is that I only have one life and I'm going to live it the way I want to. I've probably done that without consideration or respect for the people around me but I've never done it with any malice, he says. Now can you hear Lorimer justifying his actions, justifying his adultery? He can walk away from his wife and children for another woman because he only has one life to live and it's his to live and he's got to get the most out of life and he never set out to hurt anyone. It's a thoroughly selfish way to live life. But Peter Lorimer doesn't think so because in the book he compares himself with others who in his estimation are more selfish than him. Indeed, listen to the way he describes one of his teammates, Billy Bremner. What mattered most in life to Billy Bremner was Billy Bremner and his welfare. He was totally self-centred, writes Lorimer. Yeah, you've got it, haven't you? A few pages later, Billy Bremner's whole focus in the game and in life itself was Billy, very self-centred. Well, talk about the pot calling the kettle back. Peter Lorimer makes his selfishness and selfishness look more acceptable by finding someone else who's, selfish, who's more selfish than him in his estimation. No, I didn't enjoy reading this book at all. But as I did read this book, I had to admit that I do exactly the same thing. Well, not with adultery perhaps, but 
I find others who I think are not as impressive as me and compare myself with them, people who by my estimation are not quite as good or maybe a lot worse, so that I look very good. And I think we all do the same. So I have lost count of the times people have said to me, I'm not a bad person. I'm not like Fred West or Harold Shipman or Ian Huntley. Or, But you see, that's not the issue. Peter Lorimer's not as selfish as Billy Bremner in his estimation, but that's not the issue. How good we are, you see, depends on who we compare ourselves to. We can always find people worse than us to make us look good. And that's why Jesus said what he said in verse 18. See, in verse 17, as the man ran up to Jesus, the rich man had called Jesus good teacher and that's why Jesus replied, no one is good, in verse 18, no one is good except God alone. Today, in 21st century Britain, we're quite happy to describe someone we like as a good person. I do it all the time. Someone was asking me about someone I knew this week and I said, oh, she's a really good person, I like her. But a first century Jew would never be loose with, or should never be loose with the word good. On six occasions, the the Old Testament scriptures, that the Jewish scriptures proclaim, oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. See, the title good is given to God alone. That's what Jesus is saying here. Only God is good. So he's saying to this man, rich man, do you understand the measure of goodness? And to help him see that he was not good, Jesus said to him in verse 19, you know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud on your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I've kept since I was a boy. I've kept the commandments. See, this man thought he was a good person. A couple of years ago, I met a man who said exactly the same thing to me. He'd asked to meet me in church after an evening service. Uh, We sat down, I'm still to this day not sure why he asked to speak to me, but we sat down and we barely said hello, we'd never met before, we'd only spoken over the phone, and then he came straight out with it. As we sat down he said, I always keep the Ten Commandments, I don't steal or lie or murder, I've never done anybody any harm and I do a good turn every day. Well, it had been a long day and I was a bit naughty and I said, what a remarkable man you are. I said, I'm so pleased to meet you, it's made my day. You've never done anybody any harm. And then I asked him, do you even keep the first commandment? And there was a moment of silence as he was working out what it was. And to his credit, he got it. And I saw the lights go on and then he remained silent. You see, that's how this rich young man should have responded. The first commandment, the the Lord God said, you shall have no other gods but me. Now, do you see, as Jesus listed the commandments to this rich young man, did you notice what he did in verse 19? He only, he only quoted commandments 5 to 10. And so the rich young ruler, who was a good Jewish boy, should have said, hey Jesus, you've missed the first four. You've missed those that tell me to love the Lord my God with all my heart and my soul and my strength and my mind. You've missed the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. And as he said it, the penny should have dropped. No, I haven't loved God as I should. I've put other things before him. And he should have said, I failed. I've fallen at the first hurdle. I'm not a good person at all. No, that wasn't his response, was it? Verse 20, no. Verse 20, oh yeah, I've kept all these commandments ever since I was a boy. 
See, the rich man thought he was good. And that's why in verse 21, Jesus told him to go and sell everything he owned and give it to the poor. Not because that's a prerequisite to getting into the kingdom of heaven, but to show this particular man how he was breaking the first commandment. For him, money was his God. And he needed to see that. And we all need to see that. It may not be money, but all of us have fallen at the first hurdle. All of us have failed to keep God's commandments. All of us have put something else before the one true God. All of us have pushed God out, pushed him to the sidelines or worse. Isn't that a terrible thing to do? To relegate to the sidelines the God who gave us life and gives us every good gift to put other things before him, to put ourselves first. I've only got one life to live and I'm going to live it how I want and it doesn't matter really what that does to other people or whether God's interested in that. Isn't that a terrible way to live? And so do you see, none of us deserves eternal life. And if you're still in any doubt, compare yourself to Jesus, the one who is really good. Let me take you back to verse 18. You see, as the rich man rang up to Jesus in verse 17, he called Jesus good teacher. And Jesus replied, verse 18, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. Why do you call me good? Young man, young man, did you call me good because you know who I am? Did you call me good because you actually know that I am the source of all goodness? Did you call me good because you actually know that I am God, says Jesus? See, it's when I began to compare my life to that of Jesus Christ um, 25 years ago or so that I realised that, that I wasn't good and that he was. I still remember vividly when I first met Jesus Christ in the pages of the Bible how uncomfortable I, I felt as I faced up to the reality of, of what I really am. Jesus is such an attractive character. When Jesus Christ walked around this earth, people loved being in his presence. He was gentle and kind and selfless. He was dynamic, flamboyant, passionate for truth and justice. He stood up to people. His life was marked by compassion and great concern for others. At the graveside of his friend Lazarus, we see Jesus weeping. He loved him so much. When a leper came to him, a man with the most feared disease, Jesus touched him. He welcomed society's outcasts to him. He would stand up to those, to those who, who really uh, took the lead but had no right to. He showed no favouritism to the rich and famous. When he walked this earth, people loved being around him. He is the measure of goodness. And when I first looked at him, I began to see that I wasn't good. And it was then that I realised that I can do nothing to get eternal life. Now look, when I began this evening, I said I wanted to talk to you about the promise of eternal life, that is certain. And it comes as we meet Jesus. See, despite all we've seen about this rich young man, and he was a pretty impressive man in so many ways, but despite all that we've seen about him, look at the amazing words in verse 21. Jesus looked at him and loved him. It must have been quite a look. Can you picture the look on his face? It must have been quite a look for the Bible writer to see the look and know that he loved him. No, this man wasn't a good man. 
Uh, He may have been good by his standards and even by society's standards, but he wasn't a good man, but Jesus loved him. He loved him enough to show him that he wasn't good. Because if we think we're good, we'll never turn to Jesus. But he loved him enough to show them he wasn't good. And he loves his people enough to give us eternal life. See, at the heart of Christianity is the good news that Jesus Christ came into the world to express God's love for men and women who've ignored him all their lives. And he expressed that love supremely two or three years after he met this man as he died on the cross. Now, you may know about the cross, but let me ask you this evening, do you understand it? When the New Testament tells us about the cross, it tells us what God was doing when Jesus was dying there. For every time that you and I have failed to be good, every time that you and I have failed to live up to God's standards, Jesus Christ took the punishment. When I was at uh, theological college, um, what uh, somebody once affectionately described as vicar factory, you know, you go in as a, I don't know, as a, a lawyer, and you pop out the other end as a vicar, well, when I was at uh, Vicar Factory, uh, one of the things we had to do was have our, our sermons assessed. We would go to local churches, uh, preach to the poor congregations who had to uh, put up with us, and a lecturer would come along and assess our sermon. Uh, on one occasion, uh, a good friend of mine, Bob, uh, was uh, going out uh, one Sunday to uh, preach his sermon. The lecturer couldn't come along, which was not unusual, and so he told my friend to record it onto a tape. It was a few years ago, so it was tape and not CD. And so uh, my friend preached and he had it recorded on a tape. And, uh, you know, it was a terrible sermon by his own admission. And on Monday morning, rather embarrassed, he he sort of handed the tape to the lecturer and said, well, there it is. And the lecturer took it away and went into his study and uh, took the uh, tape out of the uh, container, slotted it in um, in the tape recorder and pressed the button. And just as he pressed the button, his telephone rang. And he picked up the telephone. It was one of those calls that went on and on for ages. And after a while, when it had finished, he put the phone down and he thought, now what was I doing? And he saw the tape recorder going round and round and no sound coming out. And he suddenly realised what he'd done. He'd pressed the record button. (laughs) The whole thing was wiped clean. And my friend Bob was elated. (laughs) He was so relieved, it was such a hopeless sermon and he he knew he wouldn't have reached the mark. He was bound to fail, but it was wiped clean. He had another start. Wasn't that wonderful? Wouldn't it be something to have all the mistakes in your life wiped clean? All the times you failed God, uh, 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 failed to put him first, wiped clean. Well, that is just a little something of what Jesus did when he died on a cross. That is the heart of Christianity. Jesus died so that we could be forgiven. That is the good news of Jesus Christ. And that is how we get eternal life. Because he died, we can now be acceptable to God and live forever. Now now do you see, I'm not here as a jockey to whip you morally tonight, to tell you to try harder. I'm here to ask you, have you understood God's love? Have you realised that even though none of us are good, none of us have failed up to, God's, uh, lived to live up to God's standards, have you realised that Jesus' death on the cross is the means by which you and I can know God's love and know God's forgiveness and be absolutely sure of eternal life? 
the million dollar question that all of us need to answer, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, just take it from me. I've won it for you. Take it from me. Receive it as a gift. Let me just show you that as I close. Cast your eye back to verse 15. Just before the rich man came running up to Jesus and see what Jesus says to his disciples there in verse 15. He says, I tell you the truth. Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. See what he's saying? To get the kingdom of God, you've just got to take it. You've got to receive it like a little child. Children are great at taking gifts, aren't they? The next birthday in our household is on the 5th of April. Our little boy Joshua will be four on the 5th of April. And if last year is anything to go by, we will have a birthday party with some of Joshua's little friends and all the people that love him the most. Grandma and Grandad and Uncle David and Auntie Sophia and his big sisters, Susanna and Bethan, and of course his mummy and daddy, Caroline and I, and everyone will bring bring him presents. And if last year was anything to go by, Joshua will look at Caroline and I as, as we give him these presents and he will say, Mummy, Daddy, I've not been a model son in these last 12 months. <laughs> in fact, I've been quite a scamp, a little rascal. I don't deserve these presents and he will refuse to accept them <laughs> and they will remain unopened as they still do to this day. No, if last year was anything to go by, Joshua will take the presents without a second thought, without even saying thank you, and he will rip them open and he will take the next one and he will rip that open because children are so good at taking gifts, aren't they? And that's why Jesus holds them up as an example to us in verse 15. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. We adults are hopeless at taking anything. We can't even take a compliment. Someone says something nice to us and we get all embarrassed. I like your new haircut. We can't even take a compliment. But look, this is really important. If we are really going to enjoy eternal life, we must receive it freely as a gift. Because we don't deserve it. We cannot earn it because we cannot be good enough for it. And so we just have to take it. And that is very humbling. Very humbling indeed. Religious people find that very hard to admit that we cannot earn eternal life. Moral people find that very hard, to admit that we are not good enough for eternal life. But that is exactly why Jesus died on the cross, because we cannot earn eternal life. And he loves his people so much that he longs to give you the gift. I wonder this evening if you've ever taken that gift of eternal life. Well, Andrew's already told us that there's a Christianity Explored course beginning uh, on uh, Thursday, this coming Thursday, the 8th of uh, February. At 7.15, we start with a meal, an opportunity to eat together, uh, and then to ask this question and many other questions. Indeed, we ask you to bring along any question you like, and we'll grapple with it over the weeks that Christianity Explored runs. On the back of the, uh, of the service order, you'll see there um, a little uh, tear-off slip that you could fill in, Uh, Just hand it to me or to Andrew, pop it into the office later on in the week, but fill it in tonight. There's no time like the present. Uh, Fill that in and and we'll make sure that we get back to you about Christianity Explored. You can just come along, but it helps us a little bit if we know you're coming, Uh, not least of all to make sure we can put a knife and fork out for you and, uh, and get some food ready. But just come along.
Fill in this. Uh, others of you might be saying, look, I'd like to know some more, but I can't make Christianity explored. There's a little comment section. Others of you might just want to add a comment about what you thought of tonight's service so we can make these sorts of services a little bit better. That would be great to know. So do please think about filling that in uh, before the service uh, is over or before you leave tonight. That would be terrific.